listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. All right, before, before I get on a roll here, uh, parents of second graders and younger, now's your chance to slip your kids out and send them down to... Uh, sermon child care or sermon kid watching or whatever we're calling it during this next hour or so long sermon. You'll want them. I'm just kidding. It won't be that long. Uh, but yeah, now's your chance. Anyway, um, some of you are already taking advantage of it, but did I just turn my mic off? Are we good? We're good? All right. I'm just going to walk back on and pretend that I'm starting right now. Okay. All right. Um, I wanted to share this with you. I have had a favorite pen for 10 years. Um, yeah, thank you. Because when I first uh, took a job here at Faith and moved in my office, I found 144 refills in my office for this kind of pen. So I decided that's my new favorite pen. It's the, the Zebra F301 retractable ballpoint 0.7 millimeter in stainless steel. Uh, my favorite. I do have a quibble with the plastic parts of it, though. They often will crack in my pocket, and I have yet to use one of those refills that I found 10 years ago, uh, because the pens break, but at you know, $3 each, I can use them and abuse them and uh, replace them. It's, it's not a, a huge loss. Uh, but for this summer, I've been thinking, you know, I should, I should pick up the habit of journaling, so I wanted to go shopping for a really good journal and a really nice pen, uh, something that's nice enough, that it's durable, that it feels good when you're using it, and that I will feel guilty spending the money on if I don't actually use it, right, like a gym membership. So I went looking for a, a nicer, higher quality pen, and I discovered an entire wing of the internet that is dedicated to stylophiles and paparophiliacs, just people who love pens and, and paper, in which people like compare their favorite inks and their favorite pens and their favorite papers, and they talk about the, the precision machined writing instruments made out of hard-to-find materials and papers from around the world, and they get together and justify for one another the thousands and thousands of dollars they've spent on their collections. And I tell you what, the more people love pens, the more willing they are to spend money on these pens. I said $3 pen, and some of you were like, 13 cents for a Bic, come on. What seems like an irrational purchase to some of us, most of us, all of us maybe, uh, to a stylophile makes perfect sense. You love the pen, of course you're going to pay the price that it costs. And the more you love it, 
the more you're willing to pay to get that thing that you love. That is actually exactly the point that Isaiah is making in these last three verses of this servant song uh, that we've been reading the last couple of weeks. He's not making that point about pens exactly. He's making that point about the servant, the servant with a capital S. This is a song written about Jesus, written 700 years before he was born, and we've been reading through this song during Lent because we're preparing ourselves for Easter morning by, by looking at the resurrection of Jesus through the lens of what Isaiah has to say about him and through the lens of the price that Jesus, the servant, pays to rescue a rebellious people. Actually, the words describing the price that this servant paid, has, those words have just kept piling up over the last couple of weeks. According to this song, he was marred and disfigured. He was despised and rejected. He was grieved and attacked and sorrowful. He was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed and punished and wounded and burdened and oppressed and cut off and killed. 19 different words describing the price, the cost that the servant paid to rescue a bunch of rebellious, wandering sheep. I mean, that's a lot. And it makes us wonder if the price was really worth it. Was it worth it? Well, only if the servant loves what he's getting more than he loves what he's paying. Only if the servant loves what he's getting, the people he's saving, more than he loves what he's giving up. To pay that high of a price, there has to be at least that high of love. And actually, the point Isaiah is going to make in 10 through 12 is that an infinite love will gladly pay an infinite price. When your love for something is infinite, then you will gladly pay any cost for that thing or that person, the one that you love. Let me show you what I mean. We're going we're gonna to jump into these three verses, and I'm going to jump around in them a bit and, and kind of leave a lot on the table here that's unaddressed. So if I skip something that you have a question about, email it to podcast at faithliveitout.org, and we'll talk about it uh, in the Wednesday podcast afterwards. But we're going to look at, at most of these three verses under two main headings. The first is the delight of God, the delight of God, and then the second is the satisfaction of the servant. Both of these themes come through clearly in these three verses, the delight of God and the satisfaction of the servant. Uh, we'll jump in. We'll start in verse 10 with the delight, the delight of God. It's right there in the very first line of verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Okay, when I say it's right there, I mean it's hiding right there. That, that word will it was the will of the Lord. The word will is, in Hebrew, the word for delight. We translate it delight in other places that you might be familiar with, like in uh, Hosea. When Hosea writes, God says, I delight in steadfast love and not sacrifice. 
Or when Micah says about God that God delights in faithful love, or David writes in one of his songs, uh, you, God, delight in truth in our innermost beings. Behind the word will is this word delight, denoting or expressing an idea that your heart is pointed in a particular direction with passionate intensity. That the heart of God is pointed in a particular direction with passionate intensity. I delight in my $3 pens. You delight in your, uh, your Funko Pop collection. Some of us delight in our kids' success or our Instagram-worthy vacations. We delight in our career aspirations and contributions or our lake house and our boat. I mean, our hearts are pointed in a direction with passionate intensity. So look at this verse again. Yet it was the delight of the Lord to crush him. I think most translations use the word will there because it it sounds less offensive, right? Like it, it was the will of God to crush him instead of, instead of God just really enjoyed squishing this innocent guy into the ground. And that's because that's not really the point. The point isn't something like God gets his kicks out of crushing innocent people. The point is more along the lines of, well, we know from other parts of the, the song that this, this servant put himself in this place. He gave himself over as a substitute. So when it says that that the delight of the Lord was to crush him, it's not that God delights in crushing the servant per se, but that God delights in finding and providing that substitute that we've been talking about the last couple weeks, that God delights in finding and providing the one who will stand in for his people, take the sins of his people on themselves, even at, even at so great of a cost. His delight is in the substitution. The next line makes that clear. It says, when his soul, his soul, the, the servant's soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, an offering for guilt or guilt offering, a substitution, that, that's, that sums up these words that we've read throughout this song, uh, that pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, stricken for the transgressions of my people, the, the offering of guilt. A servant is offering his own soul as the substitute sacrifice, the innocent one who will bear the sins for, bear, bear the punishment of the sins for the guilty. So the guilty can go free. Why is God delighted? He's delighted because a substitute has been found, because it's the only way to save the people he loves. God is delighted that a substitute has offered himself. God is, even as we continue reading, we'll discover delighted to be that substitute himself because infinite love will gladly pay an infinite price. Even at so high a price, God is delighted that a substitute has been found. The 
passage goes on to describe not just God's delight, but also the servant's satisfaction. His delight, his delight in being the servant, satisfied by the cost when he sees what it has accomplished. So we'll focus in on the satisfaction of the servant and spend a little bit more time here. Satisfaction of the servant, where we left off there in verse 10, the servant's satisfaction is in a, it begins to be expressed in a reward coming to him for his work. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, those who are beneficiaries of what he's done. He shall prolong his days. Even though he gives up life, it will be given back to him. The will of the Lord, the delight of the Lord, will prosper in his hand as he gets to be an, an agent of working out the delight of God into the world. But the verses continue because the, the servant isn't, he isn't just satisfied with what he gets out of this whole arrangement. Like someone putting up with a dirty job because the paycheck is good at the end. Now he, he's, he's not delighted about what, the, what this cost, what this price he pays gets him. He's delighted, he's satisfied because he sees what it gets us. That's verse 11, and this first line here, actually verse 11 is really the, the core of these three verses. This first line really brings it into focus. Out of the anguish of his soul, anguish of his soul, that's, that's a euphemism for the suffering, for the price that he paid, a, a suffering that penetrates even to his innermost being. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, and he shall be satisfied. It means having paid the price, given his own soul as a offering for our guilt, he'll see, he'll be satisfied. He'll see what's accomplished and he'll be satisfied with the cost. Another translation makes it even more plain. It says, having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. This is where that kind of fundamental question of, of how do you know if something's worth the price comes back around? Is it worth it? Is what the servant accomplishes worth the price that he pays? Is what he gets worth what he gives up? We, we know what he gives up. It's said in verse 11, like soul anguish. Verse 12, pouring out his soul unto death. This is the stricken, smitten, afflicted, crushed, wounded, pierced, like all of those words. But what does he get? What's purchased? What's accomplished? The, the, the rest, that's in the rest of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why? Because by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this is God speaking to his servant, by his knowledge, meaning he, he knows what he needs to do in order to affect these next two things, the righteous one, the servant, he will first make many to be accounted righteous and second, bear their iniquities. We've talked to quite, a, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about that second one, bear their iniquities, as it has shown up in verse after verse after verse of this song. 
that this servant, by suffering in our place, is taking our sins and our sorrows off of our backs and putting them onto his shoulders, bearing them for us, bearing our transgressions, our iniquities, our rebellions, to use all of Isaiah's words for it. But that first line, that first idea, making many to be accounted righteous, it's a new idea for this song. And it pushes, it, it pushes what the servant does into new territory, meaning not only does the servant take our sins off of us and put them on himself, but he also takes his own righteousness off of himself and puts it onto us. Our guilt goes to him, and his innocence comes to us. Behind this phrase, make many to be accounted righteousness, is this idea that the, the servant is the one who, when it comes to the exchange at the table, he's the one who brings righteousness for the exchange. He's the one who provides innocence, who provides righteousness, Righteousness for the many, for the rebellious, for the sinful, for the wandering sheep who've gone astray and wandered off their own way. So that when he brings them to the table and gives them his righteousness in exchange for their sin, he may then bring them back home to God. Not as sheep, but as children. Children of his father. This is absolutely vital for us to understand because you and I, we are not made right with God. When we come to this exchange, we are not made right with God by bringing more to the table than just our own sinfulness. We often feel like, well, we'll come to the table and we'll confess like, hey, here's what I've done wrong, but here's what I've done right. Let me bring to you my, my Bible memorization and my church attendance and my tithe percentage. I'm getting pretty close to 10. And, and we say, look at, look at how much time I've spent reading your word. Look how much I've learned. Look how many people I've told. And we say to God, you should accept me because the servant died for me. Yeah, that, but also because I brought you all of these things. I said all the right prayers at all the right times. I did what you asked, but these verses make absolutely clear that only one person bears our guilt if we are to be brought back as children. Only one person carries it, and it's not us. There's nothing we bring to this exchange except for our own sinfulness. The rest is covered it's carried by the sacrifice of the suffering servant. Let me put it this way. We, we, are not, we are not saved, we are not rescued from the consequences of our own sinfulness by learning more or giving more or being more or being better. We're saved from our sin by the suffering of the servant in our place. If we were to be left in our own rebelliousness and purposeful, aimless wandering like these sheep that wander off, eventually that rebelliousness just crushes us or leads us to its inevitable conclusion of self-destruction, self-crushing, self-annihilation. 
So we've got to understand the, the dilemma that, that God is in as expressed in these verses. Because these verses read by themselves with nothing that comes after it can strike us as puzzling, uh, as offensive even, as unfair, unjust. Why should the innocent suffer and the guilty go free? That seems like the worst kind of injustice. We usually call that by names like exploitation and oppression. But the dilemma God was in is that he has created these people he loves who have wandered off into their own self-destructiveness and left to themselves with no one to rescue them. They will destroy themselves. That's, that's us. That's you and me. But he also can't just wipe away the rebellion and say, oh, you know, it's, it's gone. Any more than you would want, uh, say, you'd lent money to someone and you would want them to just oh, just forgive it so that they could start racking up more debt from you again. You don't just wipe things away. Somebody pays that price. Somebody pays that cost. So to satisfy justice, God does something seemingly unjust. The punishment due to the guilty goes to the innocent one, the sinless one, the, the servant the only one who hadn't strayed off like a wandering rebellious sheep. And if we stop reading here, if we stop reading right here, we would understandably think that God is maybe unjust, unfair. But of course, we don't stop reading here. We continue to read in the whole story of the Bible, the story of God's buying back a people who have wandered away, who have rebelled against him. And we read into the New Testament, and we find out that this sinless servant that we've been, we've been reading about from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way to the end of 53, verse 12, the sinless servant is, in fact, God himself in the flesh, it's Jesus who is this sinless servant who offers himself because he loves the people he created with an infinite and unbounded love. As we read into the New Testament and we read Jesus saying, like, if justice can only be satisfied, If Jesus himself endures the punishment that's due to his own people, he says, then so be it. I'm, I'm good with that exchange. I'll pay that price. I'm down with that. So what appears to be the worst kind of injustice, with the innocent dying for the guilty, turns out to be the most loving satisfaction of justice possible. God giving himself in death so that his people wouldn't die. God dying for his people. And so the servant, Jesus himself, out of the anguish of his soul, sees that he has borne their iniquities and made many to be accounted righteous. And he's satisfied with the cost. He says, I see you and it's worth it. Because an infinite love will gladly pay an infinite price. If you go into a, a really fancy pen store and you tell them, hey, I'm here to buy a gift 
Price is no object. Don't be surprised when they roll out a little cart with a steel lockbox on, on top and like soft lighting and its own security guard. And they unlock it and they open it up and they pull out a Mont Blanc, Bohème Papillon, rose gold, sapphire and diamond pen. And they say for the low, low price of $100,000, you too can have this invaluable pen. And you say invaluable, you said $100,000. <laughs> It's exactly how much it's worth. What, what makes a $100,000 pen worth $100,000? It's, it's not the rose gold or the sapphires. It's not even the, the diamonds all over it or the name that's on the barrel. It's the same thing that makes a $3 pen worth, a three, worth $3. Because someone loves it exactly $100,000 worth. Somebody loves it and is willing and able to pay $100,000 for the pen. That's what makes the pen worth $100,000. Let me ask you this question. What makes you worth an infinite amount? What determines your value? It's that someone loves you an infinite amount and is willing and able to pay that price. An infinite love will gladly pay an infinite price and that infinite love transforms us when we respond to that love. We're not loved, you and I aren't loved because we're such hot stuff, we're so valuable in ourselves. We are valuable because we have been valued infinitely by the God who created us and gave himself for us. So do you know how valuable you are? Do you know how loved you are? I don't mean just in like a, yeah, I can put that math equation in my, in my head. I can put that together. I mean like do you feel at a gut level how loved and valued you are? Because an infinite love paid an infinite price for you. And when you see that love acting out, every, every week when we come together and we sing the songs of Jesus giving himself for us on the cross and we hear the words of the gospel, the good news spoken to us yet again that Jesus gave himself for us, do you feel that you are infinitely valued and infinitely loved? And if you do, how is that love transforming you? How is that love transforming you? Because it should change us. The experience of love always changes us, whether it's an earthly love or a heavenly love. That, the experience of that love changes us in at least three ways. I think that's all I have time for this morning. First, that love of Jesus for us, his infinite love giving himself for us should change us. It should at least shape what we love. We have been loved by him, and in responding to that, we begin to love the same things, the same people that he loves. It, his love for us shapes what we love, but it also shapes how we love, how much we're willing to love, how much we're willing to sacrifice in order to love. 
So we ask ourselves, is Jesus' love for me motivating me to love in the same extent that he did, to give of myself? Or do I, you know, do I do the, like, the love calculus? Yeah, this person I will love because there's a pretty good chance that they're going to return that investment. They're going to love me back and kind of lower the price. Or do we love to the extent that Jesus did? His infinite love for us shapes what we love, shapes how we love, and it also shapes who we love with. Right? When, when you've had that experience of feeling God's love for you, Jesus' love for you in, in your gut, then you can't help but get together with others who have had that same experience to talk about it together, but also to find those who haven't had that experience and say, you need to know that you are loved, that the God of the universe who made you and saw you wallowing in your own sin said, I will give myself for you, and it's worth it. I'm satisfied with that price. No buyer's remorse. The infinite love of God poured out on us shapes us, shapes what we love, how we love, and who we love with. It has to shape us because when infinite love pays an infinite price, it gets infinite permission to do whatever it wants with what it bought. Right? When you pay that high of a price for something, you get to do what you want with it. And Jesus, who paid everything for us, can ask anything of us. Payment of an infinite price means you are infinitely loved. You feel that? We got a new, uh, a new batch of kittens this week. I know, hard turn there, but we got a new batch of kittens, two of them. Uh, they were immediately named before I had any input on their names. Uh, they were named Twig and Maple. For those of you that don't know, my wife and my daughter, um, we foster kittens for the Indianapolis Humane Society, and we get them for six or eight weeks at a time, feed them, try to keep them alive, get them used to human company, and then they get adopted out. Usually they end up with friends and, and family, so consider yourselves targeted. Um, that way we can continue to follow their growth on Instagram and see how cute they're becoming. Um, th this, this current batch of two has to be bottle-fed every three hours. Fed with a bottle every three hours, including hours such as 11 p.m., 2 a.m., 5 a.m. I am glad I learned to sleep through my wife's alarm clock. She was asked yesterday, is it worth it, like getting up three times a night to feed these kittens? Is it worth it? And she didn't hesitate at all. Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> yes. At 2 a.m., no, it doesn't feel worth it, but when they grow up and they get adopted out and they go to someone's home and they're loved and you see how much joy they bring to someone, then yeah, yeah, it's worth it. Finite love, like my love for kittens, and a greater finite love, like my wife and daughter's love for kittens, We'll, we'll pay a price up to the same level of that love. 
The higher the love, the higher the price you're willing to pay. The more you love, the more willing you are to get up in the middle of the night to feed a small animal that will never know that you took care of it. An infinite love will gladly pay an infinite price for you and for me and look back on that price and say, it was worth it. Let's pray. Father, your love shown to us through Jesus continues to overwhelm us, continues to shape us and tell us who we are, whose we are, who has bought us, and to whom we belong. Every time we are confronted with a description of your love, Father, we can't help but confess that our loves do not measure up. They don't, they don't increase to that level. We, we find ourselves again and again on our knees asking you to transform us and show us how, make us into people who love like you do. Father, we know that your love through us is the only love that can send us into the places where your love needs to shine, places of hurt and pain, oppression and anger, places of deep sorrow. So make us a people who share your love in the way of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who, your son, who, who didn't go up to joy until first he had suffered pain. Your son who didn't go up into glory until first he had been crucified. Help us to walk in the way of the cross and to find in that way none other than the way of life and joy and peace. We pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, who loved, him, loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.